So last week in our series about Jeremiah, we talked about how Jeremiah brings truth to power. He goes to meet the political leaders of his time and, and he, well, he rather, he sends this message to the political leaders of his time and the message is taken by them, torn up and burned. Uh, so that went well. And, um, but it didn't end there. The king was kind of like incensed at Jeremiah's uh, message and the things that Jeremiah was saying. So having torn up and burned the message, he then sends off somebody to go and take Jeremiah and throw him into a cistern. Uh, they basically, let's just like throw him in there and then that sort of deals with him. A cistern uh, is like, a, an, in ancient times, would be like a hole of some sort in the ground of varying size that they would cover up that you could maybe store water in or something like that. There's, can you tell that I don't know a lot about cisterns? just by the way I'm describing it. In fact, actually, there's not a lot out there to learn about cisterns. In fact, of the six most significant things that happened regarding cisterns in world history, Wikipedia tells me that Jeremiah being thrown in one is one of those six. So it's not like a kind of field of research for uh, the eager young researcher. I'm going to go into cisterns. Uh, but Jeremiah finds himself sort of stuck in this cistern. I think it's worth noting that he ends up being thrown into this sort of context because what's going on with Jeremiah is that he finds himself at odds with his surrounding society. So the the message that God gives him puts him out of sync with what's going on in the rest of the world. The way the world wants to solve the problems, deal with the problems, solve all the things that are going on is different than the things that Jeremiah is saying. And this at some level is a paradox of this ancient character. That on one hand, he loves the city that he is in. He loves the place that God has called him to. The place doesn't love him because he keeps saying things which are annoyingly true. And they're annoyingly true, so as a result, he finds himself being thrown into cisterns and stuff like that. He is almost always on some sort of kind of head-on collision with the city. Now, why is he always on a head-on collision with the city? Well, I'm gonna put it to you that it's something to do with the things that he says. In chapter 10 of Jeremiah, our text for this morning, Jeremiah says this to the people of Israel and Judah. This is what the Lord says. Do not learn the ways of the nations or be terrified by signs in the heavens, though the nations are terrified by them. For the practices of the people are worthless. They cut a tree out of the forest and a craftsman shapes it with his chisel. They adorn it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it will not totter. Like a scarecrow in a cucumber field, their idols cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them. They can do no harm, nor can they do any good. The people of God, these nations of Israel and Judah are, are beginning to disintegrate in the political climate of the time. Uh, what had happened was you had this, this large nation of Israel, and because of dissatisfaction between the two nations, the nations had, had separated, and we had one nation of Judah and one nation of Israel. And in this sort of separation, the pressures of the surrounding world had still increased to the point that these nations were, were disintegrating because their large, uh, super powerful neighbor was oppressing them. So again, Jeremiah has zero relevance to our time. So the two nations, they separate, or the two, I want to say provinces, um, <laughs> they separate and things start going really bad for them. And, um, and Jeremiah is in the middle of this time and this, this powerful 
nation that surrounds them, Babylon, just in case you're wondering, um, is, is taking them off into exile and is, is, is oppressing the people that haven't been taken off into exile. But the really fascinating thing is how Israel lives in this. Now, what would ordinarily happen in the ancient world around about this time is that you would turn to your gods. And, and if you wandered through Babylon on any kind of given Saturday, what you would notice is, is a sort of huge display of representations of the different gods. Idols would be all over the place. And these idols were used as a sort of fixation of focus. If we focus on the idols as a representation of our God, they will, they will bring us help. They will, they will help us. This is difficult for Israel because at the very formation of Israel, one of the things that God said to them was, we don't do idols. You don't see uh, any our architecture in, in any of the sort of stuff that's been dug up by our um, archaeologists. You don't see any of the stuff that's been found from ancient Israel. You never see representations of God. Because God didn't want representations of himself. Now, part of the reason for this is if you read the Genesis story is the reason God doesn't want humans to build idols is because humans are already shaped and built in the image of God. So we don't need these false representations of what our God is like. But that leaves it awkward for uh, Israel because Israel and Judah are in this place where everybody around them has idols and they don't. And this confused the surrounding nations. Actually, a few hundred years after Jeremiah, when the Romans invaded Jerusalem and they invaded Jerusalem and they came to the Jerusalem temple and they went into the most holy place of the temple. And when they wandered into the most holy place of all of Israel, they were surprised because that room was completely empty. There was nothing in the most holy place. Because see, the most holy place in the Jerusalem temple is a representation of God's presence. They expected to find an idol, instead they found nothing, which actually, if you read Roman reports from this sort of time of history, the Romans think the Jews might be atheists because they don't have any idols. But here in Jeremiah's time, this is creating a bit of tension because everybody else has idols and we don't. And maybe when things aren't so going good and, and the political situation is difficult, maybe we need to start thinking about turning to idols because everybody else has them. Idols in the ancient world are kind of like car ownership. You know, like everybody has at least like one car and they might have two cars, the kind of new car and then the old car and maybe a project car. Well, idols would be some sort of the same. You would have idols for all your gods and maybe you'd be building a new one and having one that you've contracted somebody else to build and then you had the old family idol and then the new one that you brought in. And then you come to Israel and people have nothing. And this is tough for them because their lived experience is so difficult. In the complex political sort of place that they're in, they're also being asked not to trust in anything they can physically see. So although they live in a world where idols are taken for granted, they're asked to live different from that. For Jeremiah, as you see in our text this morning, he wants to get straight to the heart of the problem with idols. And essentially, Jeremiah's problem with idols, as you can see from the text that we're looking at this morning, is essentially this. Um, they're trees. Uh, you're putting all of your hope in a tree. Uh, you've got this idol and you've carved it and you've made it look really nice and you've maybe put some gold and silver over it and you've maybe got it balanced really well so it sits well in your, in your living room and you've maybe even like, you know, you've put some, some kind of cool clothes on it and it, and it looks kind of neat, but it's still just a, a tree. And, and you're, you're putting all of your hope on this tree and all of your, you know, we're, we're about to be oppressed by a foreign nation. Things are falling apart for us. And we're all looking at these trees going, well, maybe this will help us. Jeremiah says they're, they're kind of like scarecrows in a cucumber field. I, I think this is an ancient Hebrew insult. 
Uh, you, you know, uh, like, you know, like, I don't know. I mean, when I read this, I'm like, yeah, why would you want to stop anything from eating cucumbers? What a completely pointless vegetable. And, but maybe Jeremiah is saying something like this. I don't know. But the point is, like, it's kind of a scarecrow is not doing that much. We imagine it'll do a lot, but it doesn't really seem to. And, and then he lists that at the very bottom. Don't fear them. Because here's the thing about idols. They don't do any harm. They don't do any good because they're just trees. And then just spot this as we're, as we're kind of going through our text this morning, right at the very beginning, Jeremiah says this, do not learn the ways. People are immersed in a surrounding culture where idols are the answer to everything. They're, they are the default setting. They're just taken for granted. And Jeremiah comes along and says, don't learn from that. Even though you're immersed in a culture, you're surrounded by a context, the way of doing things seems to be this. Don't do that yourself. The reason that Jeremiah doesn't want them to trust in these idols is because, well, let's be honest. We all have a problem as humans. Whether we live 2,600 years ago in oppressed Judah or whether we live today in Canada, humans have a tendency to want to hope in things. But invariably, we seem to put our hope in the wrong things. We seem to hope in the things that will solve all the problems. And then it turns out afterwards that those things aren't actually solving the problems. And, and we see the Bible talk a lot about idolatry. It seems to be a big game to focus on in, in the Bible. And it's easy for us to sort of say, well, I'm not really sure that at least we've moved on beyond that because we always hope in the right things in our contemporary culture. <laughs> the problem Jeremiah has with idols isn't what we often think the problem is. Notice that idols don't do any harm. They don't do any good because they're just inanimate objects. But what they do is they adjust our focus. And, and, and there's a problem with idolatry that happens, and the Bible speaks to this quite regularly, if we'll pay attention to what it's saying, is that idols have nothing to do with God. And one of the ways we can see this in our contemporary climate is as we've pushed ourselves further and further away from belief in God, you would naturally expect that therefore our idolatry, our, our connection of things of idols would decrease. Yet curiously, the further and further society moves itself from God, our obsession with idols actually starts to increase. Our placing the hope on things that we shouldn't hope in starts to become bigger. So nowadays, we maybe don't trust in God, but we hope in nationalism or in technology or in consumerism. We, we heap all sorts of weight towards politics and environment and the economy or popularity or our own personal security. All of these things, necessary as some of them may be for us to work through our lives, become problematic when we start to put our hope in them. Because we put our hope in them. We're susceptible to be drawn to these things. We see this, the next big new thing or the current in thing or the solution to all of our problems, and we're kind of drawn to it like moths to a light bulb. Ah, here's somewhere that we can put our hope. And we get caught in this sort of cycle of, of how this works. Now, why this for me is interesting is that you can tell a lot about the places that we put our hope. If you look at the things that I would hope in or the things that you would hope in, you could start to figure out a lot about each other. Because generally, the things that we hope in, the places that we see the solutions to the problems, tell us a lot about the story that we think we're in. How you think the world should be will often be displayed in how you think we should work towards a solution. Because most of us as people, we, we tend to kind of think backwards. So we pick where we think everything's gonna end, and we sort of work backwards from there and ask, how are we gonna get there? 
So if you listen to somebody's economic position or somebody's political position or, or somebody's social ideas, what you'll see is how they think we can get towards the utopia that we all dream of. The problem is, this creates tensions for us. Maybe you've noticed that not everybody agrees on stuff these days. <laughs> Maybe you've noticed that this week. <laughs> and the reason it's so hard for us to agree on stuff is because it's not as simple as this is your opinion and this is my opinion, but actually my opinions and my hopes relate to the story that I think we're living out. And if the story I think we're living out is different from the story that you think we're living out, we're never gonna solve it just by arguing about the opinions because we actually think the world's working differently. And as these stories start to diversify throughout our lives, it's harder and harder for us as humans to get along with each other because we fundamentally disagree on what we think is happening in the world. The new solution or the current in solution, or the radical idea, it becomes really attractive to us. Have you noticed that, how somebody appears and says, here's a solution to the problem, whatever the current problem of the day is, here's the solution, and we all gather around this solution and go, yes, this is gonna properly fix things, this is gonna help us, this is gonna put everything back together. And here's one of the things that we do, and this is true in Jeremiah's time, and it's true in our time as well. We assume that we can solve all the problems. We assume that we can be the people that make up the answers. But Jeremiah kind of needles at us constantly, page after page, sentence after sentence, with the same comment. Jeremiah keeps saying to us, the solution to our problems isn't within us. The solution to what's wrong in the world isn't within us or any one of us. Whenever we put our hope on another person or another thing, we're assuming that we can come to the solution to all of our problems ourselves. The message of Jeremiah, as all good prophetic messages often are, is this constant reminder that the solution comes from beyond us. The political theologian Stanley Harvass notes that Christians are, are not exempt from this thought process. The Christians in the church have so often got caught up in the idea that we can figure out all the problems of the world ourselves. We can come up with the new idea or we can attach ourselves to the latest new idea. You simply need to look at the last 10, 20, 30 years of church history to see how often we've veered ourselves around to try and connect to the current big it thing that's happening. That the church will be really new and radical if we align ourselves with whatever's going on in the rest of the world that's new and radical. Sometimes it's populism, sometimes it's patriotism, sometimes feminism, sometimes the sexual revolution. Harvass continues, that which makes the church radical and forever new is not that the church tends to lead in toward the left on most social issues, but rather that the church knows Jesus, whereas the world does not. In the church's view, the political left is not noticeably more interesting than the political right. Both sides tend towards solutions that act as if the world has not ended and begun in Jesus. These solutions are only mirror images of the status quo. Let me give you an example of this, which I believe will not be in any way inflammatory. Your mood this week probably says a lot about where you've placed your hope. It may say more about where you've placed your hope than you would like it to. I realize <laughs> I'm treading on dangerous ground. <laughs> 
to talk about politics in church <laughs> because we should never ever do that, right? But let me tread carefully. I've seen a lot of depression in conversations this week. I've talked to people and it feels like our mood is down because of things that happened at the beginning of this particular week. I've noticed that Facebook seems to be more angry than normal. It's kind of normal level of angry. But let me say this as a Christian, the thing that has depressed me this week is how many conversations I've had, in fact, in truth, almost all the conversations I've had have forgotten one profound important point that Jeremiah is constantly talking to us about. That regardless of what happens in the world, in any aspect of the world, regardless of what happens, Jeremiah constantly wants to remind us of something that Paul in the New Testament wants to remind us of, that in fact all of the New Testament points us towards, that Jesus is king. And that that's a truth, not just the Kanye album. And, and yet we seem to forget it all the time. We seem to constantly move away from this truth that the Bible points us to constantly towards this sense that God is in charge, that God is ruling things, that God is holding all things together. And the reason prophets appear in the biblical story is when we start to forget that. And prophets appear and they tell us who God is and they tell us what God said and they tell us what God's like and they remind us of what God has done. And we as humans constantly forget this and we constantly move away from it. And that's when we need the prophetic voice of people like Jeremiah who appear and have this radical contribution. Jeremiah's radical contribution to a panicked city is quite clear in our text today. Having set aside idols, Jeremiah then states what to him is the obvious. No one is like you, Lord. You are great and your name is mighty in power. Who should not fear you, king of the nations? This is your due. Among all the wise leaders of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is no one like you. They are all senseless and foolish. They are taught by worthless wooden idols. Hammered silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz. What the craftsman and the goldsmith has made is then dressed in blue and purple, all by skilled workers. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the eternal king. When he is angry, the earth trembles. The nations cannot endure his wrath. Like Jeremiah clearly spends a lot of time in the book, How to Make Friends and Influence People. Um, but you hear the sort of resonance of what Jeremiah is saying here, his problem with idolatry, and let's just rephrase what we mean, his problem with putting hope in the wrong places is that you end up with a misplaced life. You end up with bad focuses. You end up trusting in things that cannot be trusted. And for Jeremiah, it just doesn't work. It's not either or. It's not like God plus these other ideas. It's not like trust in the Lord and all of this other stuff that you've gathered together. Jeremiah's sort of binary is there's God or there's a tree. You decide who you want to trust. And sometimes in the complexity of language, when we read the Old Testament, we think, oh, this is just, God's just pretty angry. And this angry God just doesn't like us having other gods. But that's actually not the way the Bible helps us understand this. The problem that God has and that the Bible has with idolatry is that it's a destructive falseness to put your hope in. 
You, you put your hope in something other than the God of the Bible and things will crumble. They will fall apart on you because you're putting your trust in something that we've made up in something that we've pulled together. And it's easy to spot that when we're talking about idols carved up, covered in gold and dressed up in nice clothes. But what about other things that we've created in order to put our hope in? Other systems or politics or processes or programs that, that we kind of start to put far too much hope in. Idols are dressed up trees, scarecrows in cucumber patches. But we're so desperate for meaning. We're so desperate for significance. We're so desperate to believe that we can solve the problems that we find ourselves in, that as humans, we grasp onto anything that looks like we can hope in it. The problem is, the things we then put our hope in can't sustain the weight that we place upon them. It might look like a good thing. And it's important to say this, the things themselves are not always intrinsically wrong. We need politic. We need a politic that, that, that can work our country. We, we gotta have some level of order and process. That's a basic biblical principle. We need eco economics, we need social structures, we need, we need relationships and communities and cities. These are all profoundly important things. They just can't handle if we put all of our hopes and dreams upon them. You know, you, you probably should have an RSP and you probably want to live in a house, but those things can't bear the weight of your public status. If your house and your retirement plan sort of positions you in a way that you can be proud of, it will not be able to hold that. You work hard, it's a great thing to work hard and have a profoundly good career, but that's not gonna sustain your sense of identity. That's not gonna carry you in terms of who you are. You can bounce through relationships and sexual encounters, but that won't solve your loneliness and your brokenness. Once upon a time, David Zoll says, we look to politics primarily for governance. We now look to it for belonging, righteousness, meaning, and deliverance. Basically all the things that Jeremiah tells us, we need to refer to God. The things that should point us towards God, we now try and find elsewhere. You see, because while we've lived out these subtraction stories of subtracting ourselves from God and moving him out of our narrative and out of our dialogue in the contemporary context, we find that now there's a whole host of things that we as humans need for our own flourishing that we don't know where to place. So we place them all in the wrong places. That's why our political dialogue has become so intense nowadays. It's not because we're just arguing about governance. That's a straightforward argument for us to have that can happen quite easily. But when you start to realize that your political position also speaks to your place in the world and your righteousness and how we're gonna be saved, no wonder we get really tense when we talk about it. The problem Jeremiah points us towards is that we're just hoping in something that's too small. We're hoping in something that can't bear the weight of all of our hopes and dreams. And Jeremiah's constantly speaking to us about how, in truth, we have a God whose vision is much bigger than anything we can come up with by ourselves. And while our fears often lead us to hope in the wrong things, in the process of hoping in the wrong things, we tend to abandon the right things. We tend to shut ourselves down and lose our trust. But it's important for us as, as Christians in this day, as much as it was in Jeremiah's day, to confess this reality that God is still with us and still loves us. 
God loves you. God loves your family, your community, the city that we live in, the country that we're part of. These are all still held and loved by God. And yet our attitude when our hopes fall apart is to want to abandon it and just shut down and, and move on or find something else. Perhaps what Jeremiah is saying to his people is that every generation of humans seems to need to at some point learn the same thing, that we have to trust in God, that anything else that we put our hopes in, other than the God of the Bible, will undoubtedly and eventually let us down. And so Jeremiah roots himself in a deep story, a deep story of Israel that tells us about a God. In verse 16 of chapter 10, Jeremiah says, he who is the portion of Jacob is not like these. He's still talking about idols. For he is the maker of all things. Jeremiah is saying to Israel and Judah, you are God's portion. So therefore God is your portion. He's enough for you and you are enough for him. Why? Because he made everything. And Jeremiah is trying to call us towards a different way of trusting, a new place to put our, our hopes, a different place to put our hopes. And now maybe you're on the fence about God and maybe we're not sure about how God works in this particular context. And particularly in our, in our climate, we've sort of moved God out of so many things. It's hard to imagine what would it look like to put our hope in God in these particular areas. But what Jeremiah doesn't do is kind of move God in as a kind of alternate that you might want to think about in terms of is it this or that. What Jeremiah speaks to is actually if you try and do this on your own, what you're gonna discover is it's just really tiring. It's just exhausting. Like, do I have to be this angry all the time? You ever feel like that? Just like, do I have to be mad about everything that's going on? Do I have to be annoyed at my friend because of her decisions about that particular process or that particular vote or that particular, I mean, do I, does the color of the sign that my neighbor puts in their yard mean that I have to think of them as a moron? <laughs> Alcoholics Anonymous have this truism where they say that the, the only thing better than being right is being wronged. Because when we're wronged, it gives us somewhere to focus our anger, something to blame, something to heap all of, our, all of our brokenness and all of our failed hopes on. And I wonder how much of that has gone on for us as a people this particular week, where we have a, a kind of channel to put our views on why things aren't working towards. We now have faces and names that we can say, that's what's wrong with this, this country. That's what's wrong with this city. You're the problem. But at the root of it, what Jeremiah would say to us is actually faces and names are just people trying to work out the solution themselves. What we need to do is actually return to the hope that we were always supposed to have. And that's the hope in God. Because it's exhausting to realize that what you'd hoped in has once again failed. It's exhausting to realize that the place that you'd put your dreams and the place that you assumed the solution would be found has turned out to be a fiction. It's turned out to be a scarecrow in a field. And we always were slightly suspicious that that was maybe the case. We were always slightly suspicious that these things that we've hoped in might not solve all of our problems. Have you ever noticed how little people talk about politics around hospital beds? Have you noticed how little the size of your house matters when somebody's dying? Have you noticed how ridiculous fiscal policy appears to be when you fall in love? 
When the really important things start to happen in our lives, we get a perspective to realize that these things aren't the things that we think they are. But what they also give us is a brief moment to reconfigure our hope. To reconfigure our hope into the things that we're supposed to trust in. I just wonder how many of us are tired. Like we come to this space every week and we gather ourselves in this room and we remind ourselves of King Jesus and we remind ourselves of the hope that we bring, that, we, that he brings to us. But then we've got six days of living in a world that tells a different story. Six days of being part of misaligned hope and misattributed sort of problem solving. And so it kind of sneaks up on us that we kind of thought we knew where we should put our hope, but by the end of the week, we kind of find ourselves beginning to get dragged down into the cisterns of mud again because, oh my goodness, what's going on? I don't think we do it intentionally. I don't think we refocus our hope on purpose. It just kind of happens to us. So perhaps we need to learn from Jesus' invitation. Take my yoke upon you, he says in Matthew chapter 11, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The word that we translate easy there literally means graceful and good. But notice how Jesus sets up a contrast to us. Jeremiah said, do not learn from the nations. Don't learn about the way that everybody else solves something. Hope in a new thing. And Jesus comes along and says, learn from me. The deconstruction of idolatry for Jeremiah as much as for Jesus, is an invitation to convert, to convert the imagination, to convert the content of your life, to convert your way of being, the gospel of Jesus. It makes sense of the world to those of us who are tired, tired of idols, tired of our hopes being constantly crushed. And Jesus comes along and says, what about some rest if you'll follow me? I know the word convert's not the most politically correct of terms to use these days, I realize, but Jesus never talks about accommodation. He doesn't say, well, just add me on. I'll become a kind of bolt-on to your system that you're currently working, and I'll help it. I'll help it. Because we try and bolt Jesus into our lives, and invariably, we still end up hoping in the wrong things. Rather, what Jesus came to do is not say, that's the system that works, or this is the system that works. He came and said, here's a different way, a third way, a way of being involved in life that's restful, that's righteous, that's not full of outrage and anger. The prophetic voice of Jeremiah, the voice that we're listening to throughout this series, whether it comes from outside the city or sometimes in a cistern or sometimes in a letter, is a reminder that sometimes we need something that just sounds different. And I think the church needs that too. The church needs to remember that we sound different. And we need to offer a different sound, a different way of being to a city that seems to have its station jammed on outrage. And we're constantly stuck just being angry about everything. Ultimately, the message is that we need to learn to trust. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, Paul writes to this church in the middle of a complex situation and says, I live by trusting in the Son of God who loved me by giving himself for me. If you look carefully, Paul gives you an insight into some bigger structures of how we work out our hope. Who should I hope in? Where should I put my trust? For Paul, the answer is, you put your trust in someone who has given up everything for you. And so often what we do is we put our hope in the idols, the things which, we, which are not gonna sustain our weight, or we put our hope in created things or manufactured systems and programs, or we put our hope in other people. 
And Paul seems to want to kind of give us this little clue that probably the thing you should put your hope and trust in is someone that's willing to give everything for you because that's how God's gonna heal our broken and fractured world. Why don't you stand with me as we pray together this morning? Let's pray. When it turns out that your hopes and dreams have been placed on a scarecrow in a cucumber field, when the latest new thing has exhaustingly turned out to be the same old story, may you then trust in an even older story, a truer story, a story about the maker of all things who loved you by giving himself for you. And may you, may you in trusting him, find rest for your tired life, broken dreams, and failed hopes. And may his grace and peace be with you today. Amen. And amen.